everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon, and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they're so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, Sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Okay, so today I'm joined by Dr. Shari Basdeo, a leading researcher in immunology based in the Trinity Translational Medicine Institute in St. James's Hospital. So Shari's research focuses on understanding immune cell function and plasticity in health and disease, and just recently, she's been awarded the prestigious HRB Emerging Investigator Grant to begin an independent research team focused on infectious diseases, but with a particular focus on TB. And so, yeah, I'm delighted to sit down and chat to you today, Shari. So thanks a million for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Megan. I suppose in this podcast, I want to get a sense of the stories and the experiences that shape the science, but also the scientist. Um, so sure. could you maybe uh, give us a bit of an insight into who Shari was when you were younger? Were you interested in science or did you have another career in mind? So I suppose I was kind of quite a classic nerd. I was always kind of into school. I was sitting at the front of the class and like in secondary school, I loved science and like I did biology and chemistry for my leaving cert and I just really um so I, I excelled at them if I'm being honest and I just really enjoyed them um I suppose that back then I actually wanted to be a medic so I, like I wanted to do medicine and I, I found myself in a situation where I didn't get enough points and I was like well, what am I going to do next like you know the, the, the next line the backup plan almost and then when I started natural sciences then I really really loved it so first and second year were quite, were quite daunting you know the classes are huge and it's all very general like you know you end up doing everything from you know maths to plan biology and it was all very kind of um maybe a little bit overwhelming but then come third year I specialized in molecular medicine which is kind of a um a sub kind of wing of biochemistry and I absolutely loved it and I really kind of got to know some of the staff a bit better and then I think through that kind of network then I really kind of found my feet in academia. Yeah and I think that's actually something that a lot of us find ourselves in like even for myself I actually was interested in medicine but when I started to do biomedical science, I found, I mean, I'd say 80% of the class were people who had wanted to get into medicine and and this was their backup plan, which was unusual because I actually was, was it really wanted to do the course. Um, and from that, actually, a lot of them went on to do grad med. But I think these courses are important as well, you know, where you have the mixture of the two. Oh, very much so. Like, I don't think I would be suited to a life in medicine at all now. But as a, as a student, I suppose, in secondary school, I didn't really have the concept of what life would look like for somebody with a science degree because I suppose it's not really a career per se. Like, obviously, my career path now is much more defined. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as a, you know, 16, 17-year-old filling out my CAO, I didn't really know, you know, how to choose and how to make those choices. Um, so I think I probably went to kind of naively, but I actually ended up really finding um, a huge passion in my life. And was there anyone kind of even in the secondary school or, or throughout your college who kind of maybe a teacher or someone who encouraged you and was like, you know, you, you could do this or, or this is kind of the career path for you? Oh, hugely. Like, I think um, my science teachers were fantastic in school, but it was specifically like when I was in fifth year, the way the timetabling worked, um, they they weren't allowing people to do two science subjects. Mm -hmm. So I actually went to the principal and he actually rescheduled some of my classes that 
and he enabled me to do that. So I thought that was a phenomenal kind of encouragement to have. And then I suppose when I got to college then, um, my course coordinator, molecular medicine, he took me on as a, as a summer intern. And so that was the real time I got the first kind of flavor of what was like to work in a real lab. Because obviously teaching labs are fantastic, but they don't really reflect accurately how a research lab works. Um, so when I did that summer placement, then I really kind of got to grips with how, how the lab functioned. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I suppose that was kind of, kind of my first real encouragement um, towards uh, postdocing and that kind of life. Yeah. And so after your degree, then you started a PhD and that was in Trinity, was it? That's right. Yes, I did my PhD with uh, Jean Fletcher and that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. She was a fantastic supervisor and actually even now to the same, Megan, like I feel like um, that relationship has been really key in how my career has developed because Mm. like she's always believed in me, obviously, but she's also still the person there who would send me on stuff and be like, you know, Shara, you should apply for this. You'd be great for this. You'd be a good fit for this. I think that kind of ongoing mentorship, especially from a woman in science, has been Mm. really very key in how I've kind of viewed myself as a scientist and also kind of in my ambitions and my kind of um, forward planning for my my career that kind of encouragement has been really really a huge part of my career development and did you enjoy the PhD did you how did you find it what was the experience like to be honest with you Megan I loved it from start to finish I loved the social aspect of it I loved being in the lab um no don't get me wrong it wasn't a walk in the park like I know and it's kind of that stress of like especially when you come near the end there's so much to do and there's so little time and this idea that you're on a deadline all the time and you're working towards something but to be honest with you well, there was highs and lows, obviously, with things not working and you know, the way science goes all the time. Overall, it was a very positive experience. And I think for me, um, when I advise undergraduate students as to whether they want to do a PhD or not, I always kind of say to them that, you know, you need to think about the intrinsic value it has to you um, as, a, as a human being and your education. And like, I, I love the idea that, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner and I, I kind of, I love this thing that we invest four years of our time in being level 10 educated. And it really stands to you as a person, I think, that you're, mm. you're able to know have this ability to think independently think outside the box and also to stand and, and defend mm. the um the findings and the and the ideas that you generate yourself as well so i think it's a really good way to invest your time and you know for, for both for, for education and for research purposes yeah and i think there's you know a lot of skills to be learned because people might you know think oh you're just in the lab you're doing experiments but there's presentations like you said defending uh, there's mentoring there's you know so many different you know new skills that you have to learn and all of that kind Absolutely. of as you get to the end kind of comes together I think it does and it's funny how, how long it took me anyway so like when I went in first uh, I didn't have a lot of confidence in what my ideas were and all that kind of stuff developed over time and kind of maybe at the halfway point you know you have this conversation with your supervisor where they say you know it's time now that you kind of push out and kind of generate some of your own ideas and your own experimental design if you like and I suppose it's that kind of creativity in the lab that people don't really realize we have I mean, it's, it's a very creative job and it's great to be able to be given that kind of freedom but it was also one key thing I learned as well um, kind of through my education progression is the idea of intellectual risk and how you know when you don't understand something how it's okay to say actually I don't understand that and you know, to, to ask the question yeah. because I think maybe as like a first year PhD student you feel like oh I should know all this stuff and I'm not yeah. going to ask because I'm going to look really silly but I kind of feel now that um, 
that that skill set that I have of actually being able to say, I, I don't understand that. That's not because I'm thick. It's mm. because I just don't understand it. And I need you to kind of explain it to me. I think that's been really key for me actually growing and developing and learning more and more. Because with immunology, there's so much emerges every day of the week. Mm. And there's no way that anyone could keep up to date with all of it. So I think being able to ask those questions, even if they seem kind of basic or obvious, is a real key thing to being able to kind of keep that lifelong learning pattern going. Yeah, that's actually, it's so funny that you say that because I can completely empathise with that. You know, at the start, I was like, I'm not going to put my hand up if I don't, because I thought it was a reflection of me and my understanding. And I think, how how else are you meant to know if you don't, if you don't ask? So I know, so you've done your PhD in Trinity and I've just finished mine as well. And I think Trinity is a good place for kind of young researchers to ask those questions. There's a lot of kind of forums and and seminars and stuff where it is encouraged for for younger Mm -hmm. people to kind of, to get involved. But I suppose now you're based over in TTMI in St. James's Hospital. So how are you finding that or how did you find that transition? It was, it's absolutely fantastic. TTMI, it's a, it's a really special place in terms of the fact that it's co-located with the hospital. Mm-hmm. And all the research there is very translationally focused. And it's actually a lovely place for um, a biochemist kind of background person to find themselves in. Because it is that, that notion that you, you, you switch your hypothesis thinking from being very mechanistic and kind of you know cell-based stuff to being well actually how does this have a broader application and is it worth doing if it's never going to get to the bedside you know mm. and it's, it's, it's that kind of like what do we invest in now in terms of tax, taxpayers money into research and how much impact is it going to have in reality and what kind of actual knowledge are you, going to, are you going to generate from the data so it's actually a really good exercise for all scientists to have to sit down and think about the value the end value even if it's 20 years off or you know whatever the timeline is that whatever we, we're doing in the lab can actually have an application yeah, no, definitely. And and I think it is nice to work in a setting where the clinicians and the researchers work so closely together. And within TTMI then, you've kind of branched off on your own. So you've started your independent research group and maybe just give us a little insight into, I suppose, what your research is. I know you work on immunology, so maybe a background on that yeah. uh, for people no who might be be familiar and then leading into infectious diseases and stuff like that. Cool. Okay. So um, my uh, lab are working on um, this kind of emerging field called innate immune training. The idea then is that, okay, so the immune system is, is kind of divided very basically into the innate and the adaptive immune response. And the innate immune response was classically thought to be kind of, you know, this, this frontline um, host defense whereby uh, these cells kind of non-specifically fight against foreign invaders into your body like bacteria or viruses. And then they um, resolve down and then the adaptive immune uh, response takes over and it's much more elegant and specific and has this lovely long-term memory. So if you, if you see a, an infection again a second time, it's the adaptive immune response is thought then to be able to kind of ramp up and clear that infection very fast. But what's emerged now in the field is this concept of innate immune training, whereby these innate cells actually have this ability to have memory. So um, you can subject an innate cell to a stimulus like a bacteria or you know a fungus. And then uh, for a few months, you get this window of protection whereby the innate cell then has the ability to respond, usually in an increased manner, but also maybe in a decreased manner, to other unrelated infections. Mm. Um, so my area of interest is looking at how we can kind of fine-tune this innate immune training and how that innate, uh, those, those cells that have that kind of training phenotype might impact then the, the adaptive immune response. So obviously the innate and adaptive immune response are, are very integrally linked. Um, but my particular field of interest is plasticity and the adaptive wing of the, of the immune response. So I wanted to ask the question of how this innate immune training can actually impact on plastic TH17 responses in the adaptive wing. And um, so I suppose the 
overall uh, infectious disease context for this is tuberculosis. Mm. So in TB, obviously, this field of innate immune training kind of emerged because of the BCG vaccine. Yeah. So the BCG vaccine is um, a long-standing uh, vaccine for TB. It protects children from disseminated TB, but doesn't really have great efficacy, or kind of controversial efficacy in, in the adult population where pulmonary TB is concerned. But what it does do, really interestingly, is that it, it confers non-specific protection in children to lots of different infections. And I suppose that's really interesting because it, it, it's kind of that um, in vivo classic evidence, I suppose, for the fact that this innate immune training exists. Mm. Um, so my question really came from the fact that um, in tuberculosis, end-stage active disease, where a person is maybe dying of what we used to call consumption, you know, this overwhelming immune response, that can look quite like autoimmunity. Mm. Um, so in terms of like the immune cell infiltrate and the fact that you've got this overreactive immune response. So in the context of autoimmunity, then TH17 cells are very important. And in inflamed joints, for example, like you worked on in, in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, there's this kind of plasticity where the Th17 cells behave as different kinds of cells, like Th1 type cells. So I want to really ask and get to the bottom of the question of how different forms of innate immune training might actually be impacting the signals they're giving to adaptive cells, and especially that Th17 lineage. So if by fine-tuning the innate immune training, can mm. we clear tuberculosis first off and, and never maybe have a, per, a person progress to more active disease? Or can we understand better that this kind of, this innate signal that goes on, how it affects that end-stage over-inflammatory um, kind of negative pathogenic T-cell response? And can we kind of fine-tune the innate stage to mm. impact on that? Yeah, and I think that concept of, you know, the, the, all these immune cells are cross-talking and, and kind of interacting together. And sometimes we kind of lose sight of that and we might just work on one cell type solely. So your research is quite interesting in the sense that you're trying to use one cell type to, I suppose, impact another. Yeah, it's so true that, Megan. I, I do think like the further on you kind of go down your path, especially when you go from undergrad to PhD or whatever, your focus gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. So it's my PhD kind of really very heavily focused on the TH17 cell. And then I did a postdoc um, with Ashling Dunn and that kind of opened me up to the world of macrophages. Mm. And then I suppose when I went to work um, in Joe Keane's TB lab, that they're very much so kind of more on the, on the innate side. So I was kind of joining my T-cell expertise into, into the innate cell side there. So that's where I kind of, came up with this new kind of hypothesis of looking at the, the kind of crosstalk to really understand mm. kind of a more robust view of what's going on, both innate and adaptive. And, and so when you're kind of doing these experiments, I know that you work in a very translational team, but is this based on human samples? So this is uh, blood from patients or, or, yeah, talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, so we like we work entirely on, on primary human um, macrophages and T cells, um, and the blood uh, we get donated healthy blood from the the blood transfusion services, um, which is a, it's a fantastic facility to have. But we also get blood from um, patients in the outpatients clinic, the, the, the TB patients in James's hospital. Mm. We also get uh, bronchoalveolar lavage fluids. So if a person is uh, having a bronchoscope in the clinic we get kind of the, the washings if they consent to it, the washings out of their lung. And from this, we're able to actually um, isolate out the alveolar macrophages that are the tissue resident cells in, in, a, in a person's lung. And they're really important in TB because they're the first cell that becomes infected with, with the bacteria. And they're, they're kind of um, a very critical point. So they can either um, mount an effective immune response and clear the bacteria or they become this kind of Trojan horse where the, the bacteria can actually live and replicate inside the alveolar macrophage and then it can be disseminated outside the lung or cause, cause massive pathology. So they're a very kind of key cell to study. Yeah and 
I suppose, like, give us maybe an insight into what experiments you would run. You know, for somebody who doesn't, who, who's not very sure. familiar, you know, you get the patient's blood or you get this, um, you know, alveolar fluid. And then what do you do? So what's, what's the next Sure, step? okay. So um, if we're working off blood, we, we isolate the monocytes, um, which are kind of the precursor cells to the macrophage. And a lot of this innate immune training work has been done on the, on the monocytes. So um, what, what my lab are actually trying to answer now is, can we not only innate immune train monocytes, but also the fully differentiated macrophage as well? Mm. Because the idea that um, in, in the lung tissue, the monocytes are differentiated mostly, you know, and the other alveolar macrophages that kind of come from a much earlier ontogeny that they're kind of thought to be yolk sac derived. So can we innate immune train those kind of mm. resident um, established ones? And can we also innate immune train monocytes that have infiltrated in become macrophages? And then can we all, can we then after they become macrophages have, have an effect on their immune function, if you like, post differentiation? And um, so we take monocytes and we take macrophages we subject them to a range of training stimuli and then we get we let them rest and then we resubject them to a, a different stimulus so that that's usually in my hands a, a, a tb infection it could be something else though whatever you're interested in it could be a, a ligand you know like mm. a tlr ligand or, or or whatever it is you're interested in and then we want to measure the response of those cells. So have they got an elevated um, pro-inflammatory immune response in terms of their cytokine production, for example? Um, what's happening to the expression of cell surface markers? Are they changing their kind of phenotype? Are they expressing more kind of pro-resolution or more pro-inflammatory markers? Mm. Um, and what's happening then on a, on a metabolic level? Are these cells behaving in a way that would match kind of a pro-inflammatory phenotype and be more glycolytic? Or are they behaving in a different kind of way? Um, and then also, I suppose, the, the functionality of my work that's quite really uh, novel in the field at the moment is the fact that we, we can take these cells then and co-culture them with autologous. So T-cells that come from the same donor. Mm. Um, now, in order for this experiment to work in terms of a TB infection, it gets a little bit more complicated because they, the, the person needs to be able to respond to TB antigens. So they either need to be BCG vaccinated, which you think in theory, I mean, loads of Irish people are BCG vaccinated, but it's funny how the, the response, the, the adaptive immune response actually wanes over time to that. So not everybody who's been BCG vaccinated will have a T-cell memory response. Okay. Um, but, but we, we can also get um, from the TB outpatients clinic are people who have either had TB or have latent TB, and then they have a, a pool of memory T-cells that can respond in vitro. So then you, you set up the system whereby the innate cell can then present um, a TB antigen to its own T cell and you're able to study that then kind of in the plastic dish. And obviously there's lots of issues with studying in vitro and in vivo work is always very powerful and kind of for, for mechanistic kind of things. But I suppose in my lab, um, we've built the idea on, you know, doing hypothesis-driven mm. human research. And the idea, I suppose, in, uh, from my work is that what I want to do is to be able to inform further in vivo experiments. So rather than starting in vivo using a big animal model and then trying to translate that to the clinic, and in, in the context of TB anyway, that there's been a massive amount of failures. Like There's been billions and billions of dollars of money put into TB research, but all the vaccines, all the host-directed therapies, there's none of them have actually performed well um, mm. in clinical trials. So I kind of feel like if we turn the research kind of flow work, if you like, on its head and say, let's start with hypothesis-driven human research. Let's start in vitro and then let that inform the animal model. And then the animal model could go back into humans in the clinic. I kind of feel like we're, we're setting ourselves up for success a bit more. So I think the basic research should be done in human cells first, if you like, you know, yeah. um, with the idea that it'll maybe potentially increase the translational impact on the other side. Yeah, and actually, so within your monocyte training or when you're doing the monocyte training or the macrophage training, you want to see a boost in pro-inflammatory mediators to kind of clear the infection. So yes, yeah. that's so interesting because in my research, 
we're the opposite. So I'm actually very interested in monocyte training, the NATE training in macrophages, but from a context of an autoimmune disease, so rheumatoid arthritis. And when we see this training, it actually means that the immune cells are attacking the body. So it is interesting that we're working on that how you described your experiments there are actually very similar to what we would look at or be interested in. But we're looking at it going, this is bad. We don't want. Absolutely. This is the beauty. And this is one thing I love about doing human research like this, that it's two sides of the one coin and it's so applicable. Mm. So if I, if I have a great eureka moment and have a finding um, here in the concept of TB, it does actually transapply to context of autoimmunity and even cancer because being able to modulate and manipulate the immune response, either way, up or down, fine tuning, is actually key to so many disease settings. So I think that's something that we always need to keep in mind. And yes, even though in terms of infectious diseases and early clearance, we want to kind of ramp up that innate immune response. But obviously TB is quite complex. And later on in disease, when, when someone is, is dying of an overwhelming immune response, we actually want to tone it back down. So it's a bit more like your setting, you know? Mm. So it is actually very important to kind of almost stand back and look at what um, our data can kind of transapply to in other clinical settings. So like it's, it's very exciting. And it's a very exciting way to kind of repurpose data that mm. you, you have in one context and to say, well, actually, this is going to be really useful for patients in, in a yeah. different field. But um, I'm also interested in, I suppose, just an overview of TB. You know, why do we have such a, you know, a high instance of this disease? And why are antibiotics, I suppose, not working? Yeah, so, I mean, TB is a massive global burden. It's, it's the, big, the biggest infectious disease killer in the world. And even like, I mean, the COVID-19 story, I mean, it's, it's absolutely tragic um, with this kind of global pandemic going on at the moment. But the numbers of people dying of TB you know, to date are nearly double the, the numbers that globally have died of COVID-19. And I just think, um, I think it's because it's, it's a very ancient kind of pest to man that people kind of almost forget about TB. You know, like it's, it's there on the back burner. It's something, you know, this attitude that, you know, we're always going to have to live with this. Um, but really there's a big push on now by the WHO to end TB by 2030. I mean, uh, one of the major pillars there is to invest in more research. So I suppose, um, as, you, as you alluded to there, the massive kind of, global burden now of TB is the idea of multiple and extensively drug-resistant TB. Mm. So th- these are, are bugs that are not actually being killed off by our frontline antibiotics. So when a patient gets TB, they're put on combinations of antibiotics anyway. Um, and then if they don't respond to that um, because they, they have MDR, XDR, TB, there's different combinations of antibiotics you can take. And the, the problem is these patients need to take these antibiotics for a very protracted amount of time. And then if they're given you know, the wrong dose, the wrong drug, or they take them in any way inconsistently, there's a very high chance then that they'll get this drug resistance. And the problem with the, the antibiotics, then obviously there's massive side effects, you know, they can make you go blind and deaf, you have kidneys, it's, 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 they're not pleasant drugs to take. So really a lot of the research in the field now is kind of shifting focus towards adjunctive therapy. So this idea that you could give a patient some sort of a drug that would work um, alongside a classic antibiotic but it would boost the patient's own immune response. It would help a patient to fight off the bacteria using their own immune response, as well mm-hmm. as using the antibiotic. So in this kind of this combination way, um, you might be able to kind of reduce the amount of time a person needs to be on antibiotics. You might reduce the reliance on antibiotics and kind of circumvent, I suppose, this idea of antibiotic resistance in the field. So yeah, it's, it's really host-directed therapies, adjunctive to antibiotics is really where a lot of the research is going and the focus is going now to try and um, be part of that solution to end TB by 2030. 
Yeah, it's I suppose nearly like a personalized medicine approach in that you're using, you know, the tools that the patient themselves have within their body and just trying to manipulate those to fight it. So the, the idea that, that understanding how the host response works will be kind of the key thing. Because really, even though TB is a very ancient ailment, you know, there was been um, MTB found in, in Pharaoh's tombs and all sorts of places, you know, it's, it's been around a long time. But we still don't understand the correlates of protection for TB. Mm. And really, like that's been the holy grail of TB research. Like, like if we could understand what amounts to protection um, in terms of a person's own host, like the, the, the immune response of the host, then we'll really have a key to being able to boost and you know uh, promote the, the correct kind of immune response so there's an awful lot of work has to be done there really to kind of solve those problems yeah and, and so I'm also kind of interested in what your day-to-day is like you know now you've kind of moved I suppose you're still in the lab but you're kind of moving towards more of a supervisor PI role and how do you kind of balance that or, or what does your week look like pre-COVID-19? That's a very good question. So yes, so it's funny, like the, I suppose the the more your career kind of progresses in science, the less and less wet lab work you do, Mm. Um, which like at first, um, I kind of was very kind of nervous about that because I mean, I I love to be in the lab, but as time has gone on, actually, I really actually enjoy the desk work an awful lot more. And um, I mean, in terms of mentoring other people, but you know, PhD students, and um, I work very closely with another of Joe's postdocs as well. And, and like w- within those kind of sub teams, I, I love actually having the time rather than being at the bench all the time, having the time to be the person who looks to the data and kind of um, makes a story that we, we we're able to write up. And you know, like th- those kind of more creative time within your day, mm. um, as well as of course of the you know, grant writing and all the kind of stuff that needs to be done to, to kind of sustain lab funding. But uh, I am very much so on the bench still as well. Um, and I have, to find that, I have to kind of try and strike that balance. So I suppose my next step would be to, to write a grant that would kind of nearly replace me out of the lab altogether. So with this new HRB funding, um, I will be doing wet lab work on that too. So the next step would be to, to, to hire, to, to, to get money to hire somebody that would actually almost overtake that project so I could work on the next project and getting the funding for the next big thing. Mm. Um, because as you know yourself, like, there's, there's never a minute. Like you're, you think you have a great idea and a great project and you're working really hard on it, but it's always about what's coming down the corner, down the road and you know, new publications, people having different ideas, ideas that might, might impact on your idea and how we're going to kind of move on and, and um, you know, discover and explore whatever this kind of current project leads to. So it's always kind of the next creative step or the next creative step. Yeah, and, and I do think sometimes you can kind of get caught up in your you know, day-to-day of the experiments you're running and you might have gone a month without reading a new paper, you know, and that's just the kind of, it's the reality of it. And I think, you know, we're kind of coming near to the end of lockdown now. I think people are kind of getting back into the lab, but this kind of 10 weeks or, or so has actually given me, to, like I suppose, given us all time maybe to sit down and really look at our data and read papers and say, oh, I didn't know that. Maybe that's interesting. It makes a huge difference to actually have that kind of dedicated time in the office. Like it, it makes a, a massive difference on, 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 your, on your idea of how your data fits into kind of a, a global level mm. and what other people are thinking and doing. Um, and it's really key. But as you say, it's very hard to actually etch out that kind of time to, to really focus and, and dedicate yourself. But it is, it's very, very key. What do you love most about research or what kind of drives that passion? And, and then on the, on the flip side of it, what do you find the most stressful or the most kind of frustrating aspect of of academia sure so I suppose um my drive is like I I I do actually have naive as it might be I have a real um intrinsic belief that our our bench research can really impact the lives of patients who are affected by TB and that's so that's why I get out of bed in the morning because I feel like the more we understand the more we we can actually have impact and I think it's it's that kind of uh striving to 
better understand and deeper understand can actually lead to that um, breakthrough moment um, mm. where we, we can actually say, well, you know, knowing that and knowing that the, the, the key fits in the lock there and we're able to actually maybe either generate a new drug or repurpose a drug that will work in that way to actually, you know, help somebody clear their TB infection. So I suppose, and so that's a huge element of the job that I love, and I love the, the translational aspect. Um, but also, as I said kind of earlier as well, like I love the creativity um, and this idea that even though in science there's an expectation that you are meticulous and into the fine detail and, you know, and drill down into that kind of, you know, nitty gritty, I love the, um, st- the, the ability to step back as well and look at the broader picture and say, well, actually, there's, you know, knowledge gaps there and there's creative scopes there. If we pull these two ideas together, we can have a whole new hypothesis. So I think that that's a huge element of the job that I, I enjoy. In terms of stress, there's so much stress in the job, so let's be honest. Uh, and I thought, I think a lot of that stress comes from being knocked back all the time. Do you know, yeah. I think that's something you really have to get used to. And I suppose maybe you probably understand yourself as, as a woman in science. You, you know, sometimes you have to try twice as hard to be thought of as half as good and that's okay too, do you know? Like, mm. it's not okay, but it, 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 it's a reality. I suppose that kind of reality that women go through all their lives, no matter what field they're in, is actually quite well applied in science because it's that idea that, you know, you need to keep going, keep going, keep going and don't take it so personal, I suppose. It's that thing of, you know, like, so I actually just had a reviewer's comment back this morning is before we, we logged on and, you know, the, the comments are all actually not bad, but the overall marks aren't great. And it's just the thing of like, what do you want me to do? I know. I'll do it. I'll get down on my knees and I'll do it to get this paper published, whatever you want. <laughs> um, but it's, all, it's always that, that being knocked back, knocked back. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I've written the script for that particular paper about 12 times, you know, uh-huh. and I think that it's the best paper it can be. And somebody still has an opinion on it. And I mean, I mean, obviously, all those constructive criticisms are very good, but it could be hard not to take them personally. Mm. So for me, that's a stress of the job that I need to actually keep reminding myself that this is going to make my paper even better. So thank you for your real pedantic little nitty-witty comments. But I'm actually going to take that comment now on the chin and be like, well, actually, I can make this line better. I can make this clearer. I can add in that data. And then mm. hopefully, you know, every other reader will think actually that that's a really good paper. So it is that kind of, it's an attitude almost. It's that thing of, well, let's not be too negative about this. Mm. Let's take people's criticisms and actually try and flip them and say, well, actually I'm going to make lemonade out of those lemons. I, I know. And, and it can be hard to, you know, when you read, like, I know people talk reviewer too, and you can, you're kind of thinking, are you just my competitor? You know, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and that, it could be hard not to have that pessimistic kind of view. Very, yeah. And then it's the same in terms of grant writing as well. Like, you know, I mean, you're, you're putting your ideas out there. I suppose with grant writing as well, it's a little bit more daunting because, I mean, well, you always have a little bit of preliminary data. You don't have you know, really hard, good, robust data sets to say, well, this is what we've seen. You know, it's kind of this idea of here's my big idea. Mm. And putting your big idea forward for somebody to judge is actually even more terrifying than putting your manuscript forward. Because at least your manuscript is like, I can stand over this Data, I put my head in the blocks of this data I know it's real mm. whereas when you're putting the ideas forward it is a bit more kind of you're a bit more emotionally invested in, I suppose but again that's a really good learning curve because it is that thing of actually um, I believe in my ideas and it's just about how to get them down on paper as clearly as possible and the feedback you get from kind of negative grants I suppose is really beneficial then for your, your next try you know because there's always a, a knockback and an extra and a knockback and an extra you know and I think that's um, part of the career progression and, and part of the learning curve, you know, and I suppose it's that, it's that dedication to being okay with being on the learning curve, no matter how <laughs> big or great your idea is or how big you, you think your idea is, you know. Yeah, and I suppose you kind of touched on it there as well, just about, you know, the 
I suppose being a woman in science and a, and a woman in STEM and I know you've just become first time mum I think I'm right in that yes that's right yeah yeah congratulations um, thank you but how how do you like how are you finding that and juggling kind of you know family life and home life which I'm sure for you is a, is a new thing. totally yeah, yeah it's, it's a roller coaster Megan it's an absolute roller coaster like do you know like my my little boy, he's been my best achievement today. There's no nature paper is going to come near the achievement of, 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 that, of that little man. Like, you know, um, it's, it's an absolute roller coaster ride. Though. And I think it's funny because when I was pregnant, I was real gung-ho. You know, I was, I was wrapping up in the lab with all the things I was going to do when I got back. And it is funny how your priorities kind of shift now. I mean, I still absolutely adore my job and it's, it's, it's my passion in life. But I suppose your passions and your creativity and all grow and expand with the expanding list of priorities you have. So um, even though, you know, my, my son and my family life are, are really important to me, it, it's striking that balance, you know, the, and I don't believe nowadays that something's got to give, you know, like mm. you can definitely strike a balance, but I think it is about being kind of very conscious of your work-life balance. Cause I suppose, you know, yourself in science, like it can just be a 65 hour week, as standards like you know mm. um so it is about maybe being a bit, like a bit, a bit more flexible with working times and stuff like that you know and i think this pandemic has actually been so good for us all to realize that actually we don't have to you know yeah. work kind of core normal hours that you know, we can be really highly productive in unusual hours that, you know and from home and kind of in, in other aspects like that so i suppose because the lab is so flexible as well in terms of even setting up an experiment like i mean i can decide i'm setting up today i know that's got to come off now in three weeks time and you know i can kind of control my own time mm-hmm. being a mother and being able to do that is actually really beneficial as well like so it's actually quite a flexible job really when it comes to having family so that's been good actually it's been really really good yeah and it's funny you know when you said there that like no nature paper is gonna you know be there for you you know at the end yeah. of the day <laughs> and and it is funny because so I come from um, a farming background so my dad uh, is a dairy farmer and he always talks about this like this kind of analogy of you know at the end of the day like are the cows going to be around your graveside you know and, and not yeah. but as in in the sense that you can get so caught up in kind totally. of career and and but really like will that paper you know when you're on your deathbed who will care <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing like I mean you have to strike the balance in life you know and it's just it's about finding where that's comfortable you know and as your life grows and develops I suppose it's always about being able to assess your own stress levels and like and how you're feeling within yourself um, and I think actually in science as well it's really important to get that right because if you're feeling like I suppose when I went back to that first to be really honest Megan I kind of had this few weeks where I was like I'm crap at being a man because I'm in the lab all the time. I'm crap at being in the lab because I just want to be home with my baby. And it's just like, you need to get that right. And then I think once you can kind of find a place in yourself where actually you're able to be both a on a fide scientist and a good mother mm. and, and, and be happy with that, then you can get kind of actually be free to go back to your creative thinking and your, your new ideas. And it kind of it gives you the space to relax into your new life and be like, I can do this, you know, mm. but that all kind of takes time. I do have days though when I feel like, oh, I've worked so much today. I haven't really given any attention, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, no, it all I, pans out in the end. And I, and I think, I suppose as well, one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast is to talk to, you know, people like yourself who have just 
you know, you're kind of, you've just branched out with your own independent research team, but at the same time, in the same year, I think, I think I'm right on that. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah like as in, you, you've just become a mom. So, I mean, that is like superwoman over here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But I think it is just, it is that thing of having different expectations of yourself. But I think in science as well, we tend to be the kind of people who are kind of perfectionists and we drive mm. ourselves a lot. And we're our own worst critics a lot of the time yeah. too. So I think it, it is about being fair to yourself you know and yeah. giving yourself a, a bit of a break because I know if it was me like if I had a PhD student or a postdoc who was going through something and you know they had a lot going on I'd be the first person to be like have a couple of days off leave that experiment we, we can do the experiment next week you know so I think it's just about cutting yourself a bit of slack as well yeah no definitely um, and so one of my kind of final questions for you is if you weren't in science and if you weren't um, a scientific researcher what do you think you would have been doing or what where do you think your life would have led you that's a great question. And actually, it's what I've thought about quite a bit. Um, so <laughs> I always said that if I, if the, the whole lab thing didn't work out, I'd love to open a restaurant. And no, not necessarily because like, I'm a great cook. I, I love food and I love to eat. And I do like to cook, actually. But I, I actually really enjoy the hospitality kind of industry. I, I worked kind of part-time when I was growing up in that industry. And I kind of feel like that's something that I probably would have done if, the, if life hadn't brought me down this path. You know, very different, very odd, very kind of random. But yeah. <laughs> I know I can see that you know you're quite personable quite quite a people's person so I, I could see a, you know front of house in a hotel maybe <laughs> um so that's it Sherry I mean thank you so much for uh coming on Unraveling Science and, and chatting to me today thank you for having me I really enjoyed the time So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.